Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. We are in Galatians chapter 3. Uh, continuing our study in the grace-driven life. Today we look at the issue of the the relationship between the law and the gospel. Uh, It's kind of a long-running debate and discussion, if you will. It goes back really for us to the Protestant Reformation, but it really even even predates that. Uh, But it's really at heart about what the law is for. How many of you have ever gotten yourself into trouble using an otherwise good tool for the absolute wrong reason? Anybody? Yeah, I've been there, done that. Uh, a lot of people apparently are doing that this weekend. My wife and I were out and about yesterday, and we discovered that apparently people think that if you have 30 cases of toilet paper, that makes you immune from the coronavirus. Uh, and so I, I don't know. I, I, I just, I'm not a doctor. I'm not any other kind of health professional. That's not what you use toilet paper for, okay? So just thought you'd know that. But there are other examples. I, I heard the story of two kids that almost burned their house down by trying to make grilled cheese sandwiches with an iron, using the living room couch as a base. Those must have been Deacon's kids. That's all I can say. Uh, But then there was your pastor. Back in 2003, we bought my then three-year-old son, Samuel. He was the only one we had at the time. We bought him a metal swing set. You know the metal swing sets? They're really pretty when somebody else puts them together. And so I took it upon myself to put that thing together. And I didn't realize until I had it about half assembled that the very first two pieces that I joined were backwards. And guess what? There's a domino effect to this. If you put the first two pieces in backwards, then almost everything else you do in assembling that thing, it's going to end up being backwards. Here's what I further learned, is that once you screw those screws down really tight, metal meshes in on metal, something about child safety, and, and you can't get it back apart, even if you could possibly get the screws out. And sometimes those screws are locked-tighted in. And so here I am trying to get all this out. And I know what you're thinking, Pastor. Why didn't you just read the instructions? Because instruction manuals are for sissies. That's what. And so Mrs. Rainey steps outside about three hours into this little expedition just before I'm making my first pass with a hacksaw. She said, you're going to destroy that thing and never get it back together. I said, my goal at present is just to get the pieces apart. That's all I want to do. You ever been there and done that? Use a really, really good tool. Hacksaw is not a bad tool. In fact, uh, the 19th century British pastor, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, had an analogy for a hacksaw. He put it this way. He said, a handsaw is a good thing, but not to shave with. You might lose more than facial hair. If you do something like that, the misuse of an otherwise good thing can have tragic results. Now, sometimes that happens with tools. Sometimes it happens with rules. Most of you probably have household rules, especially if children in the home. No talking back, no interrupting, obey the first time, do the dishes, do the laundry. Parents know if you've been a parent longer than about 15 minutes, 
that merely posting rules on a fridge does not create the desirable behavior that should characterize the lives of your children. You know that, don't you, moms and dads? Rules are like that. They can guide behavior. They can define what is acceptable behavior. The one thing they cannot do is create the behavior. Parents know this. You know who else knows this? Police officers. You know who else knows this? Federal judges, state and local judges. We now in, in the United States of America have more civil and criminal laws on the books in this country than we've ever had before in the history of this country. And simultaneously, more than 7 million people in this country are either incarcerated or they're on some kind of probation. So obviously, laws by themselves don't create compliance. And what we're going to learn this morning is that that's true even when it comes to the law of God. Now, up until this point in the letter, Paul's been driving a point home for us that salvation does not depend on performing the works of the law, obeying the rules. But I want you to notice a conspicuous absence up until this point in, the, in his letter to the church at Galatia. Never once during this entire time has he ever said that what that means is that the Hebrew scriptures, that body of literature that you and I refer to as Christians as the Old Testament, He's never said that it's untrue. He's never said that it's invalid. So, so here's the question. How can that be? How can salvation be solely by grace? How is it that Paul wants to set the Galatians free from the burden of living under the law, and yet we still refer to this body of literature as the Word of God? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Some of you probably have. I can imagine that if anybody in this room in front of me has... Um, has decided, in, you, maybe you decided in January you were going to read through the entire Bible. Well, it's about, we're getting into mid-March now, so you're probably somewhere in the latter end of Exodus or maybe even into Leviticus, and you've already read a considerable amount of what Paul is referring to here as the law, and some of it may have even troubled you. You may have read some prohibitions, for example, against eating certain kinds of food, and you may have even done that in your devotional time with the Lord right before looking down at your breakfast plate and seeing a great big slab of bacon. And you close your eyes and you go, is this really right? You ever wondered that to yourself? I mean, really? It says I'm not supposed to eat pork. That's what it says. This is the word of God. And then you close your eyes and you go, but Pastor Joel talks about bacon and how wonderful it is and what a great gift it is and how it's evidence that God loves us. Wait a minute. Pastor Joel's not the authority. Scripture's the authority. Scripture just told me not to eat bacon. Can I eat bacon? If you take Scripture seriously, you should at least ask the question, shouldn't you? And so that really is the question before us. Some of you may even be thinking in a, in a separate arena. You may have a teenager in your house, and you may go, well, pastor, I've made it all the way to Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy tells me that if my teen boy or girl gets snarky with me, it's perfectly acceptable to take them out in the backyard and stone them to death. And pastor, lately I've been feeling like that's the will of the Lord. That, that's just what I want to do, all right? So why can't I just pull the trigger on that? After all, it's in the Word of God. Well, all of those questions are prompted by an age-old discussion about this question. What is the relationship between law and gospel? The Protestant reformers who are our forebears, they spilled gallons of ink working through this question. And even today, it's a highly complex issue. And it goes all the way back to this letter because the question at hand at Galatia is this. If the Judaizers are wrong to impose dietary restrictions and circumcision on the Gentile members of this church, does that mean that, that the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, are invalid? 
And so this section of Galatians deals in great detail with that question, which means it shouldn't surprise us to find this part of the letter to be very dense and very complicated. But what I want to do this morning is kind of fast forward and give you the big idea. The big idea of these verses is this, that the law, the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures are not invalidated and they are not bad. But the Judaizers at Galatia have taken a good thing and they're using it for abusive purposes. And even a good thing is no longer good when it is not used within its proper place and within its proper function. So the summary is this. Don't use a handsaw for shaving. Don't use toilet paper to try to fight off coronavirus. And don't use the Old Testament to oppress other people. That's what he's going to tell us. And in fact, what we're going to learn about this document of the Old Testament are five things. There are five things you're going to learn from the Hebrew Scriptures based on what Paul writes here. And there's also five things you're going to learn simultaneously about those Hebrew Scriptures. Paul is not invalidating the law. He's putting it back in its proper place. And when he does that, we discover five things about it. Do not throw your Old Testament away, but use it for the following. Number one, the law of God, particularly those first five books of the Old Testament, reveal the centrality of Christ. Verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring. And just in case there was any question, Paul punctuates this section with this such statement. Who is Christ? So the reminder he's giving us is that the law itself, that document that the Judaizers were seeking to impose on the church at Galatia, that whole document was bound within something called a covenant. So we need to review that term. When the early Christians heard this word covenant, they understood that to be a very solemn thing. In fact, when, when two human beings agreed to a covenant, it was more serious than a handshake. It was more serious than any legally binding contract you might put your signature on today. A solemn covenant was permanently and legally binding and the seriousness of it was often illustrated by the graphic action of cutting an animal in half, not this way, but this way, allowing the pieces of that carcass to fall one to one side and one to the other. And then each member of that, of that covenant who was striking that covenant would walk and meet each other in the middle on top of blood-soaked ground as a means of saying, may I become like this animal if I don't fulfill my end of this deal? Covenants in this century were serious. And what Paul reminds us of here is that because of a seriousness of a covenant, even between men, there's two things you can never do to it. You can never cancel it, and you can never add to it. You can't do those two things. What you can do is fulfill it. That's the only thing left. After you've crossed between those two pieces of bloody carcass, there's only one choice. You have to fulfill it. And once you walk between those two bloody pieces, it's permanently binding upon you that you fulfill it. Now, why is Paul bringing all of this up? He's bringing it up as an to, to point out the mistakes that the Judaizers are, ma are making in their interpretation of the law. He says, first of all, circumcision goes back to Abraham. It's encased in the promise to Abraham. And he says to the, to the Judaizers, you missed something here. The fulfillment of this covenant is not plural. It's singular. 
Notice, S's matter, don't they? This isn't to offsprings, but to offspring. Listen, if the promise of Abraham is to be fulfilled through obedience to the law through the nation of Israel, if that's the way this works, then you are absolutely right to require circumcision, dietary laws, and everything else of these Gentile Christians so that they can become part of that nation. But if God's promise to Abraham is not fulfilled in that way, you're making a grave mistake. And what you missed here is God's promise to Abraham doesn't ultimately come and isn't ultimately fulfilled through the nation of Israel. It is fulfilled through a single Israelite, a man named Jesus. And so that brings up the second mistake. If the covenant is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, then telling Jesus' followers that they must still obey something that's been fulfilled is adding to the covenant, which is the very thing you're not allowed to do. You miss the point. That's what he's saying to the Judaizers and to the church at Galatia. Several weeks back, I mentioned about a time when polio was one of the more feared diseases in the West. One of the horrible effects of that disease was the paralysis of the lungs. And for years, there was only one way to keep a person alive once that happened. In 1670, a man named John Mayon conceptualized something called the external negative pressure ventilation system. Now, it'd be another 200 years before the first prototypes were available in Paris. But from that moment, from that first prototype in 1876, up till 1928, by the time we get to the early 20th century, mass production of this machine that pro provided this negative pressure ventilation was finally taking place in the United States. And the common man referred to this device as the iron lung. By the 1940s, rows of these machines filled hospital wards. Polio patients would spend two weeks inside these machines sleeping so that it could provide the, the, what was necessary for their lungs to be able to take in air and push out carbon dioxide. This is what you had to sleep in. And then came the polio vaccine. Something fulfilled something else. And when that something happened, it changed everything. Now, I don't know how many of these things are left in 2020, but as of 2013, there were only three of those machines left in the United States. Now, can you imagine someone vaccinated from polio, someone whose lungs are not only not paralyzed because they've been vaccinated from polio, but someone who's never, who doesn't have polio because they've been vaccinated from polio, and someone who's never going to get polio because they've been vaccinated from polio, still feeling compelled to crawl back inside one of those giant things at night, thinking to themselves, I must do this. If I'm going to stay alive, it's up to me, but it's not up to you. Because the fulfillment of that period of history was not, as it turns out, thousands of patients sleeping in these machines to keep themselves alive. The fulfillment of this period came from a vaccine that eradicated the need for that thing in the first place. This is how Paul is applying the law of Moses. And there's more on detail of what this means in later verses. But basically he's saying, if you believe that circumcision is what fulfills the law, you're looking at the wrong people. To fulfill it. So when you and I read the Old Testament, we don't throw it out, but we also don't read it as, these are all the things I have to do. We read it as, these are the things that Christ has fulfilled on my behalf and will continue to do through me. The Old Testament reveals the centrality of your faith and my faith 
in the person and the work of Jesus. And one of the ways that it does that is by further revealing our enslavement to sin. Paul will continue in verse 17, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards. So now he's given us a timeline. You've got the promise to Abraham. Now you've got the law being given in the middle of that timeline, and then Jesus will come later. The law does not annul a covenant previously ratified. Remember, covenant cannot be annulled. Covenant should not be added to. The promise to Abraham still stands so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. When then the law? It was added. In other words, what's this parenthetical insertion called the Mosaic law? What's it there for? Because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now this is a really critical section of the text because you'll misunderstand it if you read it too quickly. Because you're going to be tempted to think the Judaizers are trying to take God's people backwards and Paul's trying to take them forwards. That's not what's happening. If you come to that conclusion, then the only rational conclusion you're going to come to relative to the Hebrew Scriptures is that they're no longer valid. All right, There are a lot of very well-known pastors, even today, who will, who will invoke the language of unhitching yourself from the Old Testament or from the Hebrew Scriptures. Don't even worry about this anymore. you got to go forward. This is not what Paul is doing. In fact, he's doing the exact opposite. Paul is not trying to take Galatia forward where the Judaizers are trying to take it backward, Paul is looking at the Judaizers and saying, you're not going back far enough. You're going back to Moses. 430 years before Moses came Abraham. And if you want to understand the law of Moses, you need to first understand what preceded it. It's predated and informed by God's promise to Abraham. And the purpose of that law of Moses was never to fulfill God's promise to Abraham. And so you might say, as as Paul's objectors would have said, well, then why was it given? And Paul said, because of sin. He's, He's basically saying to his audience, you need to stop overthinking this. This issue is really simple. Societies write laws, villages pass ordinances, parents make rules and tack them on the fridge, teachers write rules on a whiteboard and give you tests to make sure you actually studied, employers enforce company policies, and we do all of that because of sin, because if we were all inherently good, we wouldn't need any of that. Amen? We just wouldn't. And so God's law, given through the Sinai covenant, reveals who God is to his people, reveals what God expects of us, And then it reveals the gap between those two. How far apart from him we really are. And just like an iron lung, the law can curb sin. It cannot vaccinate against it. It certainly cannot cure it. And so in their attempt to use the law to cure sin, the depth of their sin is actually exposed. That's the very purpose of the law. Uh, I both love and am a little intimidated by the way Christian artist Andrew Peterson describes this in a song called Remember Me. He says this, our priests are cheats, our prophets are liars. We know what the law requires, but we pile our sins up higher and higher. Who can ascend that hill? That's what the law was designed to do, to indict you, to indict me. 
Because everything God created, including the law of Moses, has a purpose. If the law is used in a way not congruent with its purpose, then the good thing can become a bad and even enslaving thing. You may have even used the law in this way, like the Judaizers, to serve your own purpose. Uh, you may have reached a point of despair because of that, or maybe even the exact opposite. You deluded yourself into thinking that you've accomplished it, and now you've become a legalist who's very proud of all the things you've accomplished. That is only because you ignore the whole and the history of the Old Testament, and you cannot see how deep your sin is. The law reveals not just the centrality of Christ, but our enslavement to sin, and furthermore, our inefficiency. Paul continues in verse 20. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. In other words, it's not the Old Testament that's the bad thing. It is you, me, expecting something of it that it was never intended to produce. If you can imagine if I've got some really nasty-looking sore on my arm, and it becomes gross even for you to look at, and so I go get it checked out, and three different physicians tell me I have stage three melanoma. And I decide instead of following their expert medical advice that I'm just going to go home and put a Band-Aid over it. Well, you don't have to look at this thing anymore, do you? And I don't either. It covers it up really well. But it does absolutely nothing to cure it. Circumcision is what Paul is talking about here. He says it may seem to unite you like you've got some gang tattoo or something, but ultimately... It just divides between Jew and Gentile. It, it creates the very division that the gospel was intended to obliterate. The law can show you what is good, but it cannot give you life. And here's the reason why. It is because you are incapable of attaining the righteousness for life by observing the law. You can't get there. You will pile your sins up higher and higher, and no one can ascend that hill. Several years ago, I owned a Ford Taurus. We were living in Maryland, and I had a regular service interval agreement with the, the dealership I bought it from, Apple Ford, Columbia, Maryland. They were wonderful people, and I had that car in for a service, and I did what a lot of you do when you know you're going to be in the shop for 30, 45 minutes. I, I walked into the showroom. That's usually not a very good idea. But I walked into that showroom to find something that I'd actually never seen except on television. A brand new Shelby GT350. Yes, sir. It was awesome. One more proof that there is a God and that he loves us. If you've ever seen the movie Ford versus Ferrari, phenomenal film, this, was, this is basically Carroll Shelby's legacy car. Um, and, and, and the base price on these things is about $74,000, $75,000. That's base, okay? That's, I, think it, I think it comes with wheels, all right? But other than that, that's just, that's just kind of the base cost. And, and so I walked over to it, and I was, you know, given who my parents were and everything, I've been around old cars. I know how to behave and conduct myself at a, at a car show. I know how to be careful with a car. And so I, I walked up very gently, opened up, looked into the, what looked like a cockpit. It's really just the interior of the car. And I'm ogling over this thing, but being very careful not to drool on it. When I feel a presence behind me, and when I turned around, it was a salesman. And, but he wasn't really acting like a salesman. He was behaving a little more like a secret service agent. And he very politely, very clearly asked me to step away. So I very gently shut the door, and as I'm stepping back, I'm apologizing. I didn't, I didn't realize there was no sign. 
And that's when he realized, okay, he's going to be compliant. So he kind of lightens up and he gives me a smile and he says, this, it's, it's just, the car's just been sold. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be this way about it, sir, except we just sold the car. And I thought, oh, well, if I'd had the means to buy a car like this, I wouldn't want some redneck like me putting my fingerprints all over it either. $75,000 car. And that's when he giggled. And I said, what? And he pointed the MSRP sticker just on the inside of the back window because this was not a base car. This was a car that had been special ordered by somebody in Columbia, Maryland that apparently had more money than they had since. <laughs> sticker price, $175,000. Now, that price tag was very informative. It told me everything I needed to know. It empowered me to do absolutely nothing. All it could do was remind me of my limited means and of the fact that I would never, ever own anything like that. You're like, Pastor, that's depressing. I know. <laughs> I know. But Paul tells us that's the purpose of the law. It's not wrong. It's not contrary to the gospel. In fact, it tells us a great deal about the holiness that our God requires of us. But the other thing about the law, it is powerless to give me that holiness. And I do not have that holiness. And so I have to get that from somewhere else. You cannot use the law as a middleman between you and Jesus and still follow Jesus. That's precisely what the Judaizers were trying to get the Galatians to do. And it's exactly why Paul's letter is so profoundly angry. All the law can do is reveal your insufficiency. Furthermore, it can reveal your dependence. Continuing with verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before death came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian, that's an interesting phrase, we'll come back in just a moment, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And so what, what does Paul mean when he uses this analogy of the guardian? Well, in ancient Greece and then into the Roman Empire where these Christians were, there were a lot of wealthy parents of means who frankly just did not raise their own children. They would almost immediately after birth pass them off to a wet nurse who would then later on at, at a certain stage of development give them to a nanny who would care for them until around the age of six. And then after that, they come under the supervision of the guardian. The Greek term here is the term pedagogue. And the pedagogue's job was to guide them through adolescence. And while there were a lot of pedagogues that were known for their kindness and care, that was not the dominant image of the guardian. These Galatians, when they hear that word guardian, the example they would have visualized was of a harsh disciplinarian who frequently would resort to physical violence as punishment and as a way of keeping the children in line. In fact, one pedagogue from this period of history was described as a fierce and mean old man who on one occasion went into a party and grabbed his ward by the hair and drug him out of the party. And that was kind of seen as the norm. You're like, well, if I had a babysitter or an au pair and they did that, they would be both fired and in jail. That's right. And so 20 centuries later, when we see this word pedagogue, this word guardian, perhaps Perhaps we should think less about the babysitter and a little bit more like a prison guard. 
Someone who's not a bad person, but someone who, because of the environment they're in, is sometimes forced to resort to some rather harsh punishment. This is what Paul is saying. If you rely on the law, your entire life will be spent under the harsh, abusive discipline of a pedagogue. The whole reason Jesus came was to set you free from that. You don't have to live like that. But you're going to have to understand that all the law can do is what it did for those who lived under it when it was in effect and prior to its fulfillment. It simply reveals your dependence on something else. And then finally, the Old Testament, as you read all through it, but specifically those first five books, the law reveals our need for a new identity. The Christian gospel is not about self-improvement. It's not about white-knuckling effort. It's not about turning over a new leaf. It is about exchanging the very core of who you are for a new identity that God gives you in Christ. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. You don't need that harsh punishment anymore. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. What's the result of that? There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, here's the good news, you are Abraham's offspring. What does that make you? Heirs according to the promise. This is the crucial difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. Under the law, life was slavery. Life in Christ is freedom, and it's not achieved by my effort. It's achieved by, it's achieved by God's grace working through me. Remember the end of chapter 2. I am crucified with Christ. I don't even live anymore. It's Christ who lives within me. I'm driven by the grace of God. And the central element of that is a new identity. This is why Paul says what the Judaizers are promoting isn't just a different idea. It's a different gospel because they're trying to take you back into something that's defined by ethnicity. Circumcision is an exclusively Jewish rite. Something that's defined by gender. Jewish males had to do this. Nationality, hierarchy. And, and what, what Jesus has done in fulfilling the law demonstrates for us that your worth and my worth, our value, are not defined in these ways. So when you start adding rules and regulations on top of what it means to follow Christ rather than just simply living and allowing Christ to live his life through you, in the freedom of the gospel. That's law-based thinking. And not only will that never deliver you from your sins, it will never deliver on anything it promises. The law is impotent to do any of that. And the reason it doesn't deliver is because your problem and mine are far worse than just a list of rules. A list of rules isn't going to fix us. We need a new identity. And the the promise of the gospel is that this is exactly what Jesus provides. Back in December, I was invited to a conference over in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. It's on the Saudi Peninsula, just across the Persian Gulf from Iran. Really nice neighborhood. And uh, I, uh, I went over. Actually, the UAE is a wonderful place, wonderful people. And uh, I was to speak at a conference over there on multi-faith relationships and uh, basically, it's, it's it, how do you get beyond tolerance to the whole idea of defending each other's rights and guarding each other's conscience. And I, I've got 
about 10 years of experience walking in those circles and doing those things. But, but I, when I got over there, I saw the guest list for those who were going to be joining me on the platform, or rather I was going to be joining them. And I was just a little bit intimidated. Have you ever been somewhere and felt like a slice of bologna at a state convention? That was me. But something happened when that plane landed in Abu Dhabi. I got off, I went down the jetway, and right at the corner of the jetway, there was a gentleman waiting on me who took me around the long line to immigrate into that country. It's okay to be jealous. Into a separate area, and when the doors opened, there was a red carpet. I'd never walked on one of those before. I'd seen it on television. So I'm trying to hide my Gomer pile. Go, hey, this is going to be awesome. And just sort of, you know, hide your inner Gomer pile at a moment like that. And so I'm, I'm walking through. I breezed through immigration. And then on the other side of immigration, the doors opened again. And there was a VIP room with recliners, 70-inch screens, and best of all, a buffet. Praise Jesus. I, you, we should all terminate a long flight with an experience like that. That's all I'm saying. After that, they gave me another identity, an ID badge, and it was coded so that when I got to the Ritz-Carlton where the conference center was, was taking, where the, where the conference was taking place, it gave me access. Access to go to the stage when it was time. Access to go to the green room and get food if I wanted it. Access to go into rooms that basic attenders weren't allowed to go into. Access to be able to talk with people that other people might not be able to talk with. Here's the thing. Nobody asked me for my resume. Nobody asked me if I had a degree. No one asked me who my parents were. No one asked me how much money was in my wallet. None of that mattered. Only one thing did, that badge. That badge got me access into anything I wanted. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, the amount of money in your wallet does not matter. The education hanging on your wall at home or lack thereof does not matter. Your rung in societal, how far, how far up you've gone, does not matter. Who your mama is, who your daddy is, doesn't matter. Furthermore, any dysfunction or sin that may be in your past does not matter. The only thing that's going to matter is this. If you are baptized into Christ, as Paul talks about here, you have his identity. You know what God sees? The same thing those dignitaries saw when they saw a badge hanging around the neck of this old redneck from South Carolina. That's the only thing that matters. God sees the righteousness of Jesus when he looks at you. Circumcision doesn't matter. Gender, race, nationality, social hierarchy means nothing because God has given you a new identity. You are a son of Abraham. You are a daughter of Abraham if you are in Christ. But the reverse is also true. If you are not in Christ at the end of the age, none of that stuff's going to matter either. If you are more of a fan of the royal family than me, which wouldn't take much, but the date, Friday, April the 29th, 2011, you, you know that date. Much of the world on that day paused. Some of you probably on this continent got up at 2 o'clock in the morning because it was around the same time in London that a royal wedding was happening. And Prince William was being wed to Mrs. Kate Middleton. Now, I, on the other hand, was in bed 
for two reasons. It's too early, and I am an American. <laughs> but if you like that stuff, that's fine. There's no sin in it. If you want to lose sleep, that's on you. Here's the interesting thing, just what's phenomenal to me about, about an occasion like that. On, on April 28th, you know who she was? She was just Kate from Buckleberry. And apart from what would happen on April 29th, that is all she would ever be. But in an instant, in the next day, by the pronouncement of a pastor, she became the Duchess of Cambridge, all by virtue of one thing. And it had nothing to do with her background or where she was from. It had to do with her connection to the future king of England. A commoner in one moment becomes heir to the throne in another. You know, there's so many people that are seeking approval from God through all manner of things. Maybe there's somebody in your past that's convinced you of this. And your life as a result has just consisted of working and studying and fretting and, and living in the fear that somehow it'll never be enough. Well, let me tell you, if you feel that way, that's because it won't. It won't ever be enough. But here's the good news. Before you were born, before the law of Moses, God made a promise to a man named Abraham. God said to that man that he would bless the world through Abraham. God fulfilled that promise to Abraham in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The law of Moses, which stands in history between those two moments, just has one purpose overall, to show you how desperately you need Jesus. Here's the good news. You can have him. You can have him. You can be a son of Abraham. You can be a daughter of Abraham. You can live free. And you can live a life that's driven by grace. Will you bow with me as we pray together? Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you, Lord, that the gospel truly means that at the foot of the cross, there are no doctors, there are no dignitaries, there are no educated, uneducated. There are no wealthy and poor. All ground is level, and there are only two categories of people, lost and saved. People who have yet to receive the blessing of Abraham through the person and the work of Jesus, and those who have received that blessing. For those who have, Father, I pray they walk out of here today in humility, but Lord, with a sense that just a thousand pounds of weight has been taken off their shoulders, that they are simply by virtue of their connection to you, a son of Abraham, a daughter of Abraham. And Father, if there is anyone here right now who has not yet taken on that new identity, Lord, would you drive them to Jesus this morning? And Father, I pray you would ready our elders and deacons as they begin to take positions around the four crosses in this room to receive others, to pray with them. Father, that you would send anyone who does not belong to you in their direction, that we'd have the awesome privilege today of telling them what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to, be, to gain entry into all of the blessings that God has given us and into a place where there is no Jew or Gentile, no male or female, nor slave, no free. All are one in Christ Jesus. We thank you for that, Lord. And, and Lord, in this moment, may we just move in a way that will be obedient to you. In Christ's name, amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. 
And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.